Luke chapter 12. It's where we're at. You should be there in your Bibles. And let me introduce uh, where we're at. We're going to finish chapter 12 today. And by way of introduction, uh, I just use the, the movie Apollo 13 to kind of set this up. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know it's about Jim Lovell and his crew. Uh, true story <clears throat> about the Apollo mission that went to the moon, the, Ill, moon, the ill-fated mission. where they, they had an explosion, and, and they had to abort their mission, change their mission. And uh, they quickly figured out that, uh, that they weren't going to be able to land on the moon, and they needed to get them back as soon as possible. They were running out of oxygen, lost a lot of oxygen, and so on. They didn't have enough fuel to just turn them immediately back around and come back. Um, and so uh, with, you know, using the laws of physics and all, they figured the best way for them to get them back was to have them slingshot around the moon, use the gravity of the, the, the moon's gravitational field to, to slingshot them around and to propel them back uh, towards Earth. And so that's what they did. And in the movie, there's a particular scene that took place where as they approached the moon, you saw all the astronauts uh, gazing out the window at the moon. And you could see all of their training ha- kicking in there. They're, they're pointing out various you know, geological features on the moon, and they're just all about it. And Tom Hanks' character, he's paint, he plays the, the commander, Jim Lovell, uh, as well, and he's sitting there involved with them as well, looking intently at the moon, and then all of a sudden you see something shift, click in his brain, and, and, he, and, he, and he steps back, and, uh, and there are the, the other two uh, members of his crew still just engaged really on their mission, what their mission was. You could see that they were all about the moon and everything there, and he asks this piercing question. He says, gentlemen, what are your intentions? And, you know, they, they turn and they give him their, intent, their attention. And he says, uh, and what, what's happening there? He's recognizing that they're all about the old mission at this point. They're all about the moon. They're all about everything to do with the moon. He said, gentlemen, what are your intentions? Because my intention is to go back to the earth. My intention is to go home. Immediately getting them focused on, hey, you got to understand what, our mission is now. It's not the mission that it once was. It's the mission that it now is. And, and I tell you that by way of introduction to our text because here in Luke, cha- Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives a series of warnings. He, he warns against hypocrisy. He warns against covetousness and worry. Uh, he warns against being spiritually dull. And today, Jesus concludes his address to this particular group with a reminder with a rebuke, and with a recommendation. He reminds them, first of all, of his mission, just as Jim Lovell would remind his crew of their mission. And Jesus starts by reminding the disciples of his mission. He rebukes the multitudes for their lack of discernment, and he recommends everyone to reach a settlement before going before the judge. And what's going on here, in keeping with the overall theme of Luke chapter 12, what's happening here is that Jesus' focus is on the afterlife. His focus is on the coming judgment that we are all going to face. And so all of these things fit within the context of, hey, the afterlife and coming before a righteous, a holy judge. So let's unpack this now as Jesus begins his conclusion Now, here to his concluding address, uh, with a reminder 
of his mission. We'll pick it up in verse 49. Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I, Jesus says, have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Now, what does Jesus mean here by the statement that I came to send fire on the earth? Now, there's three possibilities here. The first possibility of what Jesus means is that Jesus is speaking of the symbolic judgment that is to come. You know, in Jewish thought, fire is almost always the symbol of judgment. And so one thought is that Jesus' statement has in view the coming of his kingdom in judgment. A second thought of what Jesus could have possibly meant by that in, in verse 49 is that fire symbolizes the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about it. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist speaking, he says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, obviously speaking about Jesus. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is speaking (coughs) about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was promised by God through the prophets in Ezekiel chapter 37. Jesus, by the way, also gave this promise in John 14. Uh, after his ascension, he, he said that he would send the Holy Spirit. And we see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that in fact he fulfilled that promise that he poured out his Holy Spirit. And when his Holy Spirit was poured out, how was he manifested? He was manifested as tongues of fire descending upon the heads of each of the apostles. So it's possible when Jesus says, I come to send fire on the earth, that he's either, number one, speaking of the fire of his coming judgment, or number two, that he's speaking of the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. But a third thought of what Jesus was speaking of here in verse 49 is that (coughs) fire is symbolic of the spread of the gospel. You think about uh, what, what transpired after Jesus rose from the dead. There's an interesting account uh, in chapter 24 here of Luke uh, where uh, Jesus has, uh, has risen from the dead and, and then he covertly, he appears on the road with a couple of believers. They're, they're, they're devastated. They're leaving, you know, Jerusalem and all. They're downcast and, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, are you new? Like, didn't you hear about everything that just went down in Jerusalem? And, and he's, he's like, no, what, you know? And, and they, oh, about, you know, the Messiah that we, we had hoped that he was the one and so on. And so then what happens, Jesus begins to share the word with him, begins to just reveal himself through his, his word. And, and, and they're, they're, wow, you know, just all of this revelation that they're receiving. And then all of a sudden along the way, he just miraculously, mysteriously just disappears. And in that instance, they realized we were just walking with Jesus. We were just talking with Jesus. And they said to each other, Luke chapter 24, verse 32, I'll throw it on the screen. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And so when Jesus says here in Luke chapter 12, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it was kindled already, 
he could, he could either be speaking about the fire of his coming judgment or the fire of the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, or he could be speaking about the fire of the spread of the gospel. Now, I believe that he's speaking about all three. I think all three are in view here. Now, you think about it. When John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, well, to baptize with fire... Basically, it means to bring the fire of judgment, which purifies the pure, but destroys the wicked. A baptism of fire, it purifies the the pure, but it destroys the wicked. And John, when he talked about, hey, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, what he's proclaiming is that there's a real cleansing coming, as opposed to the symbolic cleansing that John was preaching. What did John do? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was baptizing people as a a way of pointing to the one who would truly cleanse the people. And so what happened is in that symbolic act, as he puts you under the water, the the act of baptism symbols the, the death and burial of Jesus Christ and the resurrection to newness of life. But John's proclaiming, hey, there's this real cleansing that's coming. I baptize you with water, but he's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with power. And this cleansing begins with the purifying work of Jesus on the cross. Now, uh, Henry Allen Ironside provides a great illustration of this. And he tells a story about a wagon train. You know, back in the 1840s, 1850s, there were wagon trains coming across the plains of America, heading west to settle in the west. And on one particular journey, there was a wagon train that was heading across, and they saw there on the horizon, just as far as they could see on the horizon, there was smoke. And it rapidly became apparent that the prairie grass was on fire, and the wind blowing in their face was blowing this fire towards them. And so one guy on this wagon train knew what to do. He got on the opposite side of the, of the wagon train, on the opposite side of the trail, and he ran with a, with a kerosene lamp just setting the grass on fire as he ran. And so as that wind burned and as it drove the fire towards them, the fire then that he started on this side took off and just rapidly just blazed away all the grass and kept burning. And then, of course, he commanded everybody to go into the area of grass that had just burned. And so one of the people, as they're doing this, they, they shout out to him. They say, are you sure that we're safe? And he said to them this. He says, the flames cannot reach us here because we are standing where the fire has been. And what a picture, Henry Ironside goes on to say, of the believer who's safe in Christ. He quotes a, a hymn. He says, on him Almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. He goes on to say this. He says, the fires of God's judgment burned themselves out on Jesus and all who are in him are safe forever for they are now standing where the fire has been. And so we see that we have that salvation, that purifying work. I've come to bring fire, that saving work that Jesus did on the cross. But then after our salvation, there's a fire that continues, and it is the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. 
And then it's perpetuated, this fire, through an ongoing spread of the gospel through, through the believers, through us. That the fire burns, creates for us salvation. The fire then burns in our hearts as this purifying work of the Holy Spirit working in us. And then the outworking of the Holy Spirit as we spread the word, as we spread the fire across the world and to the people that we come in contact with. And I want you to think about it. When is all this accomplished? It's accomplished after Jesus has completed his work on the cross, which is why Jesus then says in verse 50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished, right? He's speaking of his death, of his burial, and of his resurrection. I've got a baptism. I've got to die for the sins of the world, be buried, rise again. This is what he's talking about. And again, this is what we identify with when we are baptized. Paul said this uh, to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. He makes the same analogy. He says, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead in newness of life, uh, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, uh, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so this is the, the picture here. Jesus says, I got a baptism to be baptized with. When you and I are baptized, that's what we are identifying ourselves with. By the way, our baptism is coming up next week, week from today, right here. And if you have not been baptized, let me encourage you, you need to take this step of obedience. This is, this is something the Bible commands us to do, not to earn our salvation, but to demonstrate our salvation. That, that we, just as Paul articulated to the Romans, we need to be able to make this outward confession of this inward change. And so if you've never been baptized and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you, 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 you're a born-again believer in Jesus, you need to be baptized. If you were baptized as an infant and you don't remember being baptized, I would encourage you, make the conscious choice as an adult. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to make this outward confession of this inward change that Jesus has already done. That when we go under the water, it's a symbol of dying to the old, the old man, dying to sin. When we come up out of the water, it's symbolic of rising to newness of life, just as Jesus rose from the dead, conquering Satan and sin and death. And so I encourage you, sign up to do that. So Jesus here, he's closing out his address, right? And he, he closes it out to this gathering here in Luke chapter 12. He's giving them this reminder, hey, Keep this in mind. I want you to keep the mission in mind, what I came to do, and of his longing to accomplish that. And then in his reminder, notice Jesus now adds this, verse 51. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You're like, no, duh. You just described my family, Pastor Ted. What the heck? Right? Now, listen here. 
The key word I want you to see in Jesus' verses here is divided. That's the key word. Jesus uses the word three times, and the word is implied seven times. And here's what the word divided means. It means literally a parting. It means a disunion. It means a dissension. And what Jesus is saying here, understand, he's not saying that he came to divide families per se. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What what he's saying is really that he came to divide us from sin. And in order to do that, it requires a parting. It requires a disunion. It requires a dissension. And in the process, what does that mean? It means that you have to pick a side. It means that you can't remain neutral. You can't be neutral in the equation. You have to pick a side. And when you pick a side, that's going to alienate you from some people. It just is. That's the the get of the mix. Listen, Jesus said this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. And then what Jesus goes on to articulate is all of those actions, all of those behaviors that that these people have engaged in that, that identify them as his sheep, as followers of Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 41 and he continues and he says, Then the king will turn to those on the left And say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And then Jesus goes on to describe those things that they engaged from, those things that they did not refrain from, to to explain this is why you, you are classified as a goat, as somebody who never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so the day is coming. And in this reminder, what Jesus is giving, he's, again, the whole chapter, he's focused on the afterlife. And, and he's, he's basically saying, look, there is a dividing line that determines where you're going to spend eternity. And you are today either standing where the fire has been, or you are standing where the fire now is and will be for all eternity. This is the dividing line he's talking about. But Jesus is pointing out as well that once you do that, there is a very real effect in this present life. He's saying that being a follower of God, being a believer, being somebody who is born again, it not only has the promise of everlasting life and of being able to have your sins forgiven and and the hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven, but it also has the penalty of causing division in this present life. Listen, if you don't doubt that, or if you doubt that, let me tell you, you just, you you, you haven't been, maybe you're in a place, you know, it's been said, if you haven't had a head-on collision with the devil, maybe you might want to check that you ain't going in the same direction, you know? And and I just remember, you know, it's one story of many, but I, I had a buddy you know, in the church, I went with him. He's like, hey, my, my friend's in the hospital. He had a heart attack. Like, he almost died. 
would you go with me to go go see him? I just he doesn't know Jesus and he and he's really a hardcore non-believer, but man, he needs Jesus. He almost died. I don't know if he's even gonna make it out of this. Yeah, let's go. And by the time we were done, the guy was cussing us out of his room. You know, get out of here. And and my friend just so dejected, he was just so heartbroken. And I said, Listen, God's still at work. You don't know, man, what he's gonna do with that. He's like, Well, right now all I know is I've lost my friend. And I said, Look, you can't have it both ways. You can't be faithful to Jesus. Now, yes, diplomacy. Yes, tact. Yes, loving kindness. Yes, long-suffering. But listen, let me say, truth by definition means that there is one truth and that, uh, that, that divides because there is truth and there's error. There's truth and there's lie. There's what's true and there's what's not true. And it immediately causes a division. And so I told him, look, you know, you you told the guy the truth, and you told it in love. Now, he didn't receive it well. Let's pray he comes around. Now, it doesn't always work out this way. In in my friend's situation, it worked out great that he he did, in fact, uh, come to know the Lord after a couple of years. So praise Jesus, the guy came to know the Lord, but not that night. That night, all he wanted to do was cuss us out of his room, get out of here, you know. And if he could have gotten out of his bed, he probably would have punched us out, you know. He was a big boy. He actually went into cardiac arrest at the gym. He was yoked, man, you know, but uh, he was flat on his back at that point. Thank, thank you, Jesus, he couldn't get to me. But at any rate, it, it, it causes a division. That's the idea. That's what Jesus is saying because not everybody wants to part from sin. Pastor Chuck Smith said this. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ divides men. Those who were saved and those who were lost. Those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who have a hope in the eternal life and those who have no hope of eternal life. The gospel of Christ is a divider of men. Families are divided by it. By the way, this is why the Romans hated Christianity. Do you know that? One of the reasons they hated Christianity was because Christianity caused such division within families and all they were interested in was keeping the peace, man. We just want everybody in check and in line and it was causing all kinds of upheaval socially. And in families, and so that's one of the reasons the Romans so despised Christianity and fought against it. And so Jesus here, he starts with this reminder of his mission, just to give a, just to give a clear picture, hey, this is what my mission's all about, these are the ABCs of me and following me, and now he gives a rebuke. And as he rebukes the multitude, what's he doing? He's rebu- rebuking them for their lack of discernment. Notice verse 54, he said also to the multitudes... Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Understand, Jesus here in this day, the people of his day, they they lived in an agrarian society. That is to say that they farmed for their food. Now, we in America, most of us don't farm for our food. Yes, a lot of farming takes place in America, but most of us, what do we do? We get in our car and we drive down to the grocery store and we pick up the stuff that has been trucked in from the Midwest, you know, the the corn and the grains and the grain-fed beef or whatever. Or we picked up the stuff that's been trucked in from, you know, central California, the almonds and the grapes and things like that. Or we pick up the stuff, the seafood that's been trucked in from the Pacific Northwest or from the East Coast or whatever. That's kind of what we know. But in Jesus' day, you weren't jumping in your car running down to the grocery store. You were depending on what the land produced. 
And as well in Jesus' day, they didn't have the technology to store water and to transport water like we do today. And so you were dependent on the weather. So they became very adept at forecasting what was going to happen with the weather because they depended so much on the rains coming to grow their crops. And so they were very discerning about the signs and about the indicators. And Jesus says there in verse 56, basically, look, you're so good at that. How is it that you can't discern this time? Now, if you see that phrase, this time, you might want to circle it. Nearby, you could write this. You could write a fixed and a definite time. Because that's literally what that says in the Greek. And Jesus here is speaking about the time of his coming, of his first coming, right here, right now. Jesus is saying, you're a bunch of hypocrites because you are all about being able to read the weather and knowing everything. But how is it that you could miss what was so plainly given to you by the prophets about this time? Understand, God had given them an RSVP that Jesus was coming and it was black and white. It was very precisely clear. I'll give you an example of what Daniel the prophet said in Daniel 9.25. Put it on the screen for you. Daniel prophesied this. He said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. Now let's unpack that. Here's what Daniel the prophet said by God. He says this, by the way, hundreds and hundreds of years in advance, God says what we just read through the prophet Daniel. Now let me explain, first of all, this idea of weeks. Um, You've got a period of seven weeks, Plus, you've got a period of 62 weeks. Altogether, that equals 69 weeks. Now, in Hebrew, weeks simply refers to a unit of seven, okay? And the Jews had Sabbatic years. And so, uh, by which their years were divided into weeks of years, okay? Understand that. So, that's the idea here. When Daniel is prophesying, each week is comprised of a week of years. In other words, Daniel prophesied that there would be a total of 69 weeks of years divided into two parts. The first part was, he said there would be seven weeks of years, which is 49 years, between the, you know, until the command to rebuild Jerusalem would go out. And so he said, look, basically in 49 years, there's going to be a command to rebuild Jerusalem. And you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, 49 years later, that's when the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem. And then he said after that, that there were going to be 62 weeks of years, which is 434 years, until the coming of the Messiah. So altogether, what Daniel's prophecy was, was, hey, 483 years from now, the Messiah is going to come. That's what Daniel was saying. And he said it 483 years before Jesus is speaking right here. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, if you'll remember, tells us that Jesus began his public ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And so if you go back in history and you look at that time and you do the math, what you figure out is that when Jesus is speaking here in our text today... Well, what do you know? It's been 483 years since Daniel gave his prophecy. Now, let me say two quick points of application right here. Just put the pause button on. 
Number one, you need to understand, you need to know that God's word is authoritative and it's true. Prophecy is a mind-blowing thing. Who else can tell you 483 years what's going to happen and then it happens? Like there, there ain't nobody else that can do that. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says as much. He says, I'm God. There's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Right? He's God. So we need to just take note of that. God's word is true. People go, oh, you know what? God's word, it's full of errors. No, it is not. It is not. And they say, oh, God's word, it was written by man. Well, yeah, it was. But clearly, they were inspired by God because the Bible tells us that much. And which man can ever call hundreds of prophecies hundreds of years in advance and get them all right, by the way? It is a mathematical impossibility. So that's the first thing I would say is, look, you got to understand, point of application, you take God's word to the bank. It's, it's the real McCoy. Number two point of application I would say about this is, look, not only did God prophesy about Jesus' first coming, which is what's in view here, but he also prophesied about his second coming. And we need to understand that there are many prophecies. The Bible gives us many prophecies, First and Second Thessalonians, Second Peter, Book of Revelation, just among a few of many. The Bible contains a lot of prophecies about the fact that Jesus is coming back. And just as Jesus is rebuking the people for a lack of discernment here in Luke chapter 12, we have to heed the rebuke for today. We got to be discerning of the times today. Because they're living, they're, they're fat, dumb, and happy. They don't have a clue. They don't want a clue. They don't want to phone a friend. They don't want to buy a vowel. And there's a lot of people today that are living the same way and have lost sight of the fact that the Bible says, what is your life? It's a vapor. You are here for a little while. And then you're gone. And Jesus is coming back. We will, the, the, the view here in Luke chapter 12, it's in light of eternity. There is, there is a, there's a future coming when Jesus is returning. And there is a future coming when we will stand before the Lord and give an account for our life. We got to know that that day is coming. Now, there's a lot more I'd love to say about prophecy. I don't have the time to do it. But just plan on, on Sunday, January 5th. Um, we're going to have my friend Tom Hughes, who's, who, that's, that's the specialty of his ministry, is prophecy. So I'm going to have Tom and a friend of his come. And Sunday night on January 5th, we're going to have a, a special time in here just to go through prophecy, looking at the prophecies of Jesus' second coming. And we're going to look at it in light of the events that are happening, modern day events. And so you mark that on your calendar. That's coming up in January. We're going to partake of that together here. So listen, we need to, to, to heed the time. And so Jesus here, he gives this reminder of his mission and he gives this rebuke that, that you got to be discerning of the times. And he finishes off with a recommendation and his recommendation is simply this. He's, remind, he's recommending that everybody reach a settlement before going before the judge. Let's read the text, verse 57. <coughs> Jesus says, Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid 
the very last penny. Here's what Jesus says. He says, look, you need to, you need to settle up. And that word settle that he uses there in verse 58, it means to remove or to release. It means to deliver and to set free. <clears throat> Jesus here, he's not talking about earthly things. He's using an earthly example of when people go to court. And basically what he's saying is you're guilty. And you better figure out before you get before the judge how to appease your accuser. You better figure out how to get right with the guy who has the grievance against you because you're going to be found guilty and there's going to be a huge problem. You've got, you got to remove yourself and release yourself from your guilt. You have to, to be delivered and set free. And so he's using this, this earthly example to point out a heavenly truth. And here's the heavenly truth. I want you to hear this. This is where we draw to a close. Jesus is saying, look, a day is coming when everyone's going to stand before God. And one of two things is going to happen on that day. Either you're going to make peace and settle with God through Jesus Christ. Or you're going to stand before a righteous judge who is coming and pouring out his wrath. And you're going to stand before him guilty and ashamed with nowhere to run, ain't nowhere to hide. This is the one of two options that Jesus is making here. Listen, it's true. God is a God of love. He is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. The Bible says God desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. That's what the Bible says. And it's very true. <clears throat> it's very true that, that you can make peace with God. In Jesus Christ, you can have peace. You can have peace with God today. You can be made a new creation. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. This is available today. But, but Jesus' point here, he says, if you don't make every effort, notice the phrase, along the way. That's what he's saying. He says, along the way, make your plea. Get removed and released from, the, from your guilt and, and be delivered and set free. Along the way. What's along the way? This is along the way. Your life is along the way. It's that vapor that's here for a little while and tomorrow is gone. And here's the problem. We always think that the way maybe is a little longer than it actually is. And the truth about your life, the truth about my life, you, you don't know long, how long the way is. You just don't know. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is, look, along the way, you, during, during your time on earth, you better make peace with God because here's the thing. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And he desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. But if you do not work it out with him along the way, then what's going to happen is you're not going to be standing before the God of love and of mercy and of grace and forgiveness. You will be standing before the God of wrath who, because he's a righteous judge, has to judge sin. Isaiah the prophet said this. He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, I would add, along the way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Make peace with God along 
the way.